what are our cultural values? If you were to ask that question and think about it for a couple minutes, you could probably give a few things pretty quickly. What does our culture value? Freedom, self-determination, individualism, materialism. We could go on and on about what our culture values, but those would be a few core things, wouldn't they? Uh, uh, if you were to couch in a large measure what our culture values, the cultural idol that it bows down to, it would be expressive individualism. That phrase is uh, I'm not the one to coin it. It's uh, been used by multiple people. Carl Truman, in some of the books we've given away um, and that he's written in recent years, describes expressive individualism, and it's the idea that the individual is to be worshipped, uh, that the individual is king. Uh, not only must the individual be allowed to do what they want to do, but and the culture around them tolerate that, but now the culture around them needs to celebrate and affirm that. The reality about culture is that it is like atmosphere. It is the air we breathe. We breathe it in, we breathe it out, we are around it, we're surrounded by it, we're surrounded by those values, and like it or not, it changes us. It has an influence on us. Even when it, we don't think it does, we as Christians, we would say, well, no, I mean, we don't hold to those values, but we would be surprised at how just breathing in and breathing out that same air, it changes us. We imbibe those values, whether we think we do or not. And really, that idea of the disciples of Jesus imbibing the cultural values around them is what is focused on in large measure in Matthew 19 through 20. You see, Matthew, as you remember, is is, is all about the kingdom. It's all about uh, Jesus being king. It's all about talking about the coming of the kingdom. When's that going to happen? But it's also all about how do you live while you wait for the kingdom. And Jesus has these five main teaching sections in Matthew. We call them discourses. But where he's teaching his disciples, here's how you live as my disciples. So you've got the Sermon on the Mount. You've got uh, the mission discourse in chapter 10. You've got the parables of the kingdom in chapter 13. And then we just finished with the fourth of those five discourses in Matthew 18, talking about uh, as Jesus is building his church, his temple assembly, how do you live as disciples within that church? And surrounding these teaching sections, Matthew has narrative where he advances the storyline of what Jesus is doing. And so now we enter, having finished chapter 18, we enter a new narrative section where the storyline is going to progress. And what's amazing about this is as the storyline progresses, especially through chapters 19 through 20, you're going to see Jesus encounter uh, primarily three different, a little bit, there's a couple others, but primarily three different groups. He's going to encounter the Pharisees, he's going to encounter a rich man, a rich young man, and he's going to encounter uh, James and John's mother. Uh, and what you're going to see at what's at stake in each of those encounters is cultural values. See, he's going to, each, each one of those episodes, he's going to correct the cultural values, and he's going to teach the disciples, here's kingdom values. 
Here's what the kingdom values look like. And what you will see is the kingdom values are exactly inverted from the surrounding culture. But he has to correct his disciples because they have imbibed the surrounding culture. And what's amazing, as we walk through 19 and 20, Jesus is going to address things that are very much relevant to our time. He's going to talk about uh, marriage and divorce and gender. He's going to talk about, uh, when he talks about the rich young ruler, he's going to talk about wealth. And he's going to talk about uh, status in chapter 20. And each time, Jesus is going to invert cultural values. And so as we walk through, as we start through chapters 19 through 20 in the coming weeks, as we walk through these passages, here's the main question you want to be asking yourself as we walk through this. Jesus is shaping his disciples' values, and here's the main question you need to ask along with them. What cultural values have you absorbed that Jesus wants you to invert in your life? You see, Jesus and his kingdom will make you live with values that are generally opposite of the culture around you. So if you have values that match the culture, you need to be concerned. And you need to have Jesus invert those values for you. And that's exactly what he's going to be doing in the coming weeks. So let's start with a very easy topic. Let's talk about gender, marriage, divorce, and celibacy this morning. Let's start there. But Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He addresses the issues then and surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, because people are people, it's the same sorts of issues that we face today in our culture and in the church. And here's the main idea from Matthew 19, 1 through 12. As disciples of Jesus value marriage as highly as its creator does and value remaining unmarried for the kingdom as a gift. That is the main idea of the text this morning. As disciples of Jesus, value marriage as highly as its creator does and value remaining unmarried for the kingdom as a gift. First, what we want to see in verses 1 through 2 is we want to follow Jesus' inverted value march into Judea. Follow Jesus' inverted value march into Judea. Look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 19. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, now that's the catchphrase that Matthew uses to say, uh, we just finished a big teaching section of Jesus. So you see that phrase or form of it at the end of Sermon on the Mount, uh, end of chapter uh, 10, really chapter 11, verse 1, and so on and so forth. So we just got this clue, all right, we're transitioning now. We're transitioning out of teaching, we're transitioning back to narrative. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, this is significant. We've got geographic markers here, and you're like, well, what's the big deal? He's just moving around. Well, Jesus has been in Galilee in the north of Israel. If you need to see where Galilee is, you can look in the book of maps in your Bible, the very back, and you can get a picture but Galilee's been in the far north. That's where Jesus' home base was. That's where his hometown was. Uh, and he's been in Galilee basically since chapter 4 in Matthew. And everything we've read basically from chapter 4 through now has been in Galilee. And now Jesus moves. He moves south 
and he moves to Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, where is he at? Well, you'll come to find from some of the other geographic markers that uh, are indicated later in the text that he is probably on the eastern side of the Jordan, uh, opposite Jericho. So he's in the south, he's near Judea. Why is he in Judea? Because he's going to Jerusalem, and he's on the opposite side of the Jordan, the eastern side of the Jordan, uh, from Jericho. Now, places have memories. Places have memories. So even with Matthew just mentioning the geography, there's a couple things we should notice. This is the same basic area probably where John the Baptist was baptizing way back in chapter 3. But even farther back than that, this is what's called the Plains of Moab, where Moses gave his last addresses to Israel before, uh, before dying and before handing over to Joshua the reins to go into, uh, to go into Israel. This is the place, basically, where Jesus is at, where, Jesus, uh, where, where Moses expounded on the law to Israel. And what's interesting is you will find, both uh, this week and next week, that in a couple of these encounters, the law is at issue, and Jesus' authoritative application and teaching of the law. That's nothing new. We've seen that way back in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up on a mountain, like Moses, to give the law, not as a mediator, but as the direct source. And that theme continues here. But what you need to see in this geographic movement is why. Why is he moving? Why is he moving this direction? Geography is important because this geographic movement has roots back in chapter 16. Right after Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, immediately after that, and when Peter does confess that, he's way far north, even of Galilee and Caesarea Philippi, he's way far north. But immediately after that confession by Peter of Jesus being the Christ, we get Jesus' program in 1621. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter has none of it. He doesn't like that because that's the exact opposite value, the exact opposite value. Uh, mindset of what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah is supposed to come. He's supposed to conquer. He's supposed to get rid of the Romans. He's supposed to rule, elevate Israel as the highest nation in the world. And in fact, the Messiah is supposed to rule over all the world. All that's true. So where is, where is this suffering thing coming from? He doesn't like it. And that theme continues, 17, 22, and 23. When they were gathering in Galilee, so now they've they're in Galilee, they're getting ready to go. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him and be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. That idea of the disciples being greatly distressed is they're disturbed. This idea of a suffering Messiah, why? and that is Jesus' whole purpose in making this geographic movement. He is going south, he's going to Judea, he's going to Jerusalem, but for the purpose of suffering and rising from again, and that is an inverted value march from the way the culture around them accepted the Messiah. And those inverted values continue to show up, like I said, in chapters 19 and 20, and really multiple places in Matthew, where this is exactly opposite of what good Jews at that time expected. 
And it sets the stage for Jesus toppling and inverting, even for his disciples, the cultural values around them. So we're following Jesus' inverted value march. And as we march through Matthew 19, 20, and even into chapters 21 and 22, I want you to watch carefully in the coming weeks how the geography shifts, because it's Jesus going for his mission to suffer, to die, to rise again for the sake of his people. Now, we get our first encounter in chapters 19 through 20 in verses 3 through 12. The main idea for 3 through 9 is this, value marriage as highly as its creator does. Value marriage as highly as its creator does. Look at verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him, they approach him, and tested him. So we already know, Matthew's framing things to understand that the Pharisees, and we've met the Pharisees multiple times before, they are in opposition to Jesus. They are in full-fledged opposition. The Pharisees uh, did not necessarily have an official position within Judaism, but they were respected teachers of the law. They were seen as righteous, pure, holy, and you listen to them. You listen to what they say. So they're kind of a grassroots movement, but they are in full opposition as leaders of the people to Jesus. And so they approach Jesus, but that key word, they're doing it to test Jesus, meaning what? They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him uh, to slip up. They're aiming at his downfall. So they're going to ask a question, but we know the motivation already is not a genuine motivation. It's not like they're really trying to know this. They're framing things up to try to get Jesus to topple. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it allowable, is it permissible to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, what they are doing is they are addressing an issue that was prevalent in that culture and time. You see, if you were to go back to the law, if you were to go back to the Old Testament law, Moses' law, there's basically one passage, maybe another or so, that addresses the issue of divorce, but one in particular, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. And um, we're going to turn there eventually. We'll get there eventually, but I'm just going to kind of summarize the issue for you right now. Uh, th that passage is the backdrop for what the Pharisees are asking. And basically, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 um, says... Uh, if uh, a man has a wife and he ha um, she doesn't find any favor in his eyes and he finds something indecent in her and he gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her away and it goes on and it goes on. But uh, what that did, that passage does, it, is it created a dispute. It created a dispute between interpreters because they looked at that passage and they said, well, what's the cause of divorce here? It says that if a man... Um, uh, if a woman finds no favor in the eyes of a man uh, after marriage, and he finds something indecent in her. And there were two schools of thought about what something indecent meant. On one school of thought was that uh, that meant some sexual impropriety. And so that was kind of the narrow view that, oh, okay, so you can only divorce because of some sort of sexual impropriety. That was one school of thought. The other school of thought was, no, something indecent or something shameful could be anything that's shameful in the eyes of the husband. And so if your wife overcooks your meal, then that's grounds for divorce. And I'm not kidding. That's how they talked about it uh, in the, uh, that school of thought. So you've got the narrow view and you've got the broad view. 
The prevailing view in Jesus' day was the broad view. The broad view. That for any cause, any and every cause, basically, you could have grounds for divorce. Now, I want to point out a word here in what the Pharisees ask. It is the word uh, that is translated cause. Uh, This is the idea, because we're talking in a legal context here, uh, this is the idea of legal basis for a charge. In fact, you can translate this word charge. So the Pharisees are asking, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife for any charge, a legal basis for uh, action? And that's the question. And now, why are they asking this? We know they're asking this to trip Jesus up. So what are they doing? Well, they probably already know uh, what Jesus has said about divorce in Matthew 5. So Matthew 5, 31 through 32, Jesus has already at least taught his disciples. Uh, The crowds are there listening in on this. They probably already know that Jesus has a way narrow view of divorce. And they're trying to set him up. As the conversation progresses... They're going to try to get him into a gotcha situation. So they're setting him up with this. They probably already have an inkling of how he's going to answer. But let's see how he answers. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read, which is a really kind of insulting, backhanded, or however you want to take it. It's insulting to the Pharisees, right? Because they're supposed to be the experts on this. And he's basically saying, have you read this stuff? Because what I'm about to tell you, you should have read and should have already come to the same conclusion that I'm going to tell you. Have you not read, and then he appeals to scripture, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Right there, Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27 is in the middle of where God creates mankind where God creates humans and describes their function, what they're supposed to do. They're to have rule, they're to be the image bearers of God in the likeness of God, exercising rule and dominion over the earth. But in making mankind, he made two and only two genders. And that is what Jesus is saying here. He made them male and female. He doesn't say man and woman, he says male and female. He's highlighting their genders. So we already know, just as an aside right here, that Jesus believes in two and only two fixed biological genders. So Jesus stands against the transgender movement of our day. But what's important here is not just that he quotes that, he then goes on to tie this with more scripture. Verse 5, and said. Now who's doing the saying? The creator. The one created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and the creator said... And now he quotes Genesis 2.24. If you've noticed in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Genesis 1 has like a zoomed out version of the creation. It's like very zoomed out. And particularly with the issue of the creation of man and woman, the creation of humankind. And then what Genesis 2 does is it like zooms the lens in on what did that look like? What did it look like for God to create male and female? He creates the man first from the dust and then he creates The woman has a complimentary helpmate to the man, and then when woman is created and God brings her to the man, then um, Adam celebrates, he's excited, and uh, right after that is where we get Genesis 2.24, which is what Jesus is quoting. Therefore, or on account of this, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. Now, don't miss the connection. Jesus is citing Genesis 1.27 saying, oh, God made mankind, God created humans in two genders. But why? On account of this, on account of what? On account of God making humans in two distinct genders, on account of this, a man will leave his father and mother and, and now here's a very strong word. It's strong in Hebrew. It's strong in Greek. Will be glued to his wife. This is, this is a very strong word. This isn't just, you know, it's usually translated there, uh, a, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife. But the idea is you're welded together. You're glued you're cemented together. And it's something that happens to you. And uh, a man will leave his father and mother and will be glued to his wife. Who's doing the gluing? Well, Jesus will point out here in a minute, God is. God's doing the gluing. God's doing the welding together. And the two will become, the result of this is the two will become one flesh. So see how the logic works and see how Jesus is tracing this. God made mankind. God created humans in two and only two genders, male and female. Why did he do that? For the purpose of marriage. Such that uh, when that man and that woman, one man and one woman come together, they leave their closest family, father and mother, they leave them behind and God welds them together to form a one flesh relationship, a new family unit. Now, notice what Jesus focuses on in verse 6. So then, so he's done quoting scripture, and now he's drawing conclusions. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, what is the one flesh thing referring to, both in Genesis and what Jesus is talking about? Uh, it is talking about the sexual union but, uh, but it's not all of that. Those of you who are married, you understand that there is a mysterious element that when God brings you together, you are united in a way such that you are viewed as one entity in God's eyes. And you feel that even apart from the sexual union, although that is very much pointing to that reality. Now, what is so Jesus is focusing on the oneness of this. God cemented them together one flesh. So what's his point? What's his answer to the Pharisees? Verse 6, the final phrase there. Therefore, what God has yoked together, that's the literal sense of that word, what God has yoked together, a man must not separate. Now, that's an imperative in the original language. It's not a suggestion. It's not like, well, you really shouldn't do that. It's a command. We don't really have this in English. In English, if you want to give a command, it's a you. You do this or you don't do this. But Greek not only can do that, Greek can actually have a third person imperative, meaning that person can't do that, mustn't do that, will not do that. But it's a command still, and that's what's going on here. What God has joined together, a man must not, imperative force, separate. 
It's a command. In other words, what's his answer to the Pharisees' question? They're looking for, uh, is it allowable uh, for a person to divorce his wife for any, any and every cause? And Jesus said, no. No. Divorce must not happen. Must not. That's not God's design. Because God designed the genders to come together in marriage, one man with one woman, and God glues them together into one flesh. God put it together. God put it together, not man. So a man must not separate that bond. From the standpoint of creation and from the standpoint of God's design, God never designed marriage to include divorce. That wasn't the design of marriage. Now, are there legitimate grounds for divorce? Yes, Jesus is going to bring that up. But the point is, and this is Jesus' point, if you're going to talk about grounds for your divorce, you don't start in Deuteronomy 24. You start in God's purpose for marriage in creation. That's your starting point. You start with marriage. You don't start with divorce because God, from his original design, didn't have divorce in mind. So then the Pharisees have already kind of anticipated that he's going to go somewhere like this. And they thought, ha, gotcha. Verse 7. And they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And so they're referring more explicitly now to Deuteronomy 24 and they're saying, well, look, Moses talked about giving a certificate of divorce and sending her away. So uh, you're wrong, Jesus. You're in conflict with Moses. How does Jesus answer this? So you see how they're there. They're angling to trap him and to get his downfall. See, Jesus, you're against the law here. You're wrong. Well, so how does Jesus answer it? Verse 8. He said to them, Moses, with reference, and that's literally how it reads, with reference to your hardness of heart, allowed you. Now, how does that differ from what the Pharisees just said? What did the Pharisees just say? They said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? What does Jesus come back with? Moses, with reference to your hardness of heart, allowed you to divorce your wives. So that's the first piece, and now we're in a position to actually go back to Deuteronomy 24, but that's the first correction that Jesus is uttering. You guys have got it all wrong. You're framing it in the wrong way. You Pharisees are saying it's a command. When it's not a command at all, it's an allowance. It's an allowance. So now we're in a position, go back to Deuteronomy 24. Let's see what's going on there. So remember what I said earlier, this is Moses giving um, exposition of the law before Israel goes into the promised land. And he's in the same basic sp spot that Jesus now is when he's talking to the Pharisees later. It's really interesting. Anyway, Deuteronomy 24 Deuteronomy 24, let's read verses 1 through 4. This is the backdrop to this whole debate. 
When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to, his wife, uh, to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance. A couple things here. What's this whole certificate of divorce thing? Well, basically, both in Moses' day and in Jesus' day, for that matter, uh, the initiative for divorce rested with the husband, with the man. Um, there is some question as to whether wives in Palestine and Israel had the right to divorce or not. Seems like some, uh, maybe some in some cases, but in the vast majority of the cases, it was the husband who initiated divorce. So what would he do? He'd write a little slip of paper, kind of like a receipt in a way, basically saying, you're no longer my wife, uh, I renounce any claim on you. And what that allowed her to do is not only would she go out of the house, uh, but she would, it, that would be her kind of token to say, I can get remarried now. I can get remarried. Because you have to understand that uh, uh, the security for a woman in both Deuteronomy, uh, the culture in Deuteronomy and in Jesus' day, the security for a woman was being under the household of a man, being under the protection of a man. And uh, that, that was her social security, so to speak. So she had to get remarried, was the idea. And so that's what this whole certificate of divorce thing is all about. However, notice where the Pharisees are saying there's a command. They're saying that writing a certificate of divorce, Moses is commanding the husband to give a certificate of divorce to send her away. Is that what the text says? No. Verses 1 through 3 are a big if. They're a situation that may occur and evidently does, was occurring, but the command portion doesn't come in until verse 4 in Deuteronomy. The command portion is, um, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife uh, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for inheritance. That's the command. Nothing in verse 1 through 3 was a command. It's an assumption. It's a supposition that this is happening. Is Moses and God allowing what is going on in verses 1 through 3 to happen? Yes. Does that mean God condones it? No. God allows things all the time that he doesn't condone. Think about um, the situation with Joseph and his brothers. Does God allow Joseph to get sold into slavery by his brothers? Does he even use that? Does God use that for uh, the preservation of the people of Israel? Yes. Does God condone the selling into slavery of Joseph? Absolutely not. Same thing here in Deuteronomy 24. It's a big if. Verses 1 through 3 in Deuteronomy 24, God's allowing this to happen. That doesn't mean he wants it to happen. 
And Jesus points to the reason even that God and Moses, as God's agent, is allowing this to happen with reference to your hardness of heart. Now, what does that mean? Well, the only time, at least in the Greek translation of the um, Hebrew Old Testament, that the word hardness of heart is used is Deuteronomy 10. So if you're talking in the Pentateuch, in the Law of Moses, the only time it's used is in Deuteronomy 10. And I want you to catch this, because Jesus is pointing up a theme That brings understanding. So, uh, look at Deuteronomy 10. Let's start in verse 12 to get a little context. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now Israel. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to Israel. He's talking to a nation. Okay, he's talking to a whole people. And now Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of Yahweh which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, Yahweh your, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet Yahweh set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them you above all peoples as it is this day. Here it is, 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now, what does that mean? And you're like, hey, where's the hardness of heart? It just says circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Well, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is what was accessible to Jesus and the disciples and those, uh, the, the Jews of that day, Matthew's audience, it says circumcise the hardness of your heart. What's the point? The point is, and you see this theme running through Deuteronomy, Israel as a nation, by and large, doesn't know God. Not in a saving way. Yes, God has a covenant relationship with them as a nation, and he's working through them. And there are individuals like Moses and like Joshua who do have a circumcised heart. We would call that regeneration. Uh, but the nation as the whole does not. The nation as a whole is a bunch of sinners that don't know God. Yes, God is giving them law. Yes, God has a relationship with this nation. But the nation as a whole has a hard heart, a, a fleshly heart, and it needs to be circumcised. In fact, that's part of the problem. At, by the end of Deuteronomy, God's like, yeah, Israel, you're, you're going to go into exile because you're going to be disobedient. But a time's going to come when your heart is going to be circumcised so that you obey me from the heart. And so an instance like Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 3, that's an instance of hardness of heart. God is allowing it, but God is putting a certain limit on it by verse 4. He's not condoning it. He's not celebrating. He's certainly not commanding it. But he's saying it, God is allowing that because of the hardness of heart of the nation. Once the hardness of heart of the nation is solved, what's going to happen? The nation is going to obey from the heart, and they're going to be aligned with God's purposes, including God's purposes of marriage from creation, which is what Jesus is appealing to. And that's what he says. Go back to Matthew 19. Moses, with reference to your hardness of heart, allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not like this. 
Again, what's he appealing to? He's going back to creation. What he's already uttered, he's saying that where you need to start is creation. Where you need to start is creation. And what about the created order of marriage, the one flesh relationship? The fact that God glued a man and woman together in marriage, and a man must not separate that. A man must not break that. It's a command. Which leads him into his logic in verse 9. Based on that, based on the creation of order of marriage, which if someone has a circumcised heart, they're going to they're gonna want to fall into line with this. Verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So you got to understand the culture, what Jesus is speaking against. The culture at that time, you can give any charge you want as a man to divorce your wife, and then it's all legal and it's good. I severed the marriage, and so now I can go remarry someone else. That's all happening from a human, horizontal, legal perspective. It's all kosher as far as the, uh, the legal aspect is concerned from a human perspective. But Jesus is saying that's not what matters when it comes to marriage. What matters is God's perspective. God glued you together. And a man can't dictate to God when that glue breaks. That's why he says, you may go through your little divorce proceeding and uh, divorce your wife. You may give her the certificate of divorce and goes away. And you think, may think, oh yeah, now I get the option of marrying another woman. And God says, no, you're still one flesh with the person you divorced. And so effectively you're committing adultery with this other woman. That's Jesus' logic. And so he's saying, You think you dissolved that marriage with your little certificate, but you didn't. In God's eyes, you're still one flesh with that woman, and you're committing adultery. It's the same logic that Jesus uses back in Matthew 5. Go back to Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to his disciples as kingdom citizens. Here's how you live. Uh, It's it's basically the same uh, setting because Jesus, in chapter 5 of uh, Matthew, uh, he, he says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, well, where did the disciples hear that it was said? They heard it from the Pharisees. So he's, he's, he's already combated this before. Verse 31 and 32 in Matthew 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's what the Pharisees are saying. That's how they've twisted Deuteronomy 24, because Deuteronomy 24 doesn't say that. But what does Jesus say? He's the authoritative interpreter of the law, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes, now it's a little bit different here, makes her commit adultery. That man is one flesh with that woman. If you give a little certificate of divorce and send her away, well, effectively, what are you causing her to do? Well, she's going to go because of security and get married again. But effectively, you're forcing her into a situation where adultery is being committed against her. But it's the same basic logic. It's the logic from the one flesh relationship. What does he say? He gives another case. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So maybe this woman, she gets divorced. Someone sends a certificate of divorce. The husband sends her out. She's a divorced woman, but not in the eyes of God. And so if you marry that divorced woman, you're committing adultery. 
It's all based on the one flesh relationship because God is the one who forms a marriage. God is the one who forms a one flesh relationship. You may think you're dissolving it from a human perspective with your legal certificate, but you're not. Not in God's eyes. And God is the one who made the marriage, so his opinion is the one that matters. Now, what do we take away from all of that? First, let's start with the issue of where Jesus starts, with gender. The different genders, male and female, are for the purpose of marriage. God created it that way. Um, And you can see, you can actually see in our culture how the undermining of gender has come from a devaluation of marriage, right? Because gender is supposed to uh, be for the purpose of marriage, but when it unravels, it actually unravels in the opposite direction. Where did all of the transgender movement start? It didn't start last week. It started with the, in our culture with no-fault divorce, which is essentially the same thing that Jesus is addressing here. Because no-fault divorce means, well, you know, marriage isn't that big of a deal, and we can give our little certificates and legal process to dissolve a marriage without fault. And so now marriage isn't held that high, and, um, it, and then that leads to same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage, right? Because if you don't value marriage that high, and it's all about love and feelings and yushi-gushi whatever, nothing about God whatsoever, then, well, love is love, right? And so same-sex marriage. And if it's all about love is love, and it's all about how I feel, then, well, my gender, I don't really like my gender, so then gender gets undermined. It's all tied together. And what is Jesus' point in all of this? He starts with the idea that the gender, the gender differences, by and large, not in every single case, he's going to address a case here in a second, but by and large, the gender differences are for the purpose of marriage. So enjoy the gender that God has given you and pursue a godly marriage. If that's what God has for you, like I said, he addresses another matter here in a second, but by and large, enjoy the gender that God has given you and pursue a godly marriage, because that's what gender is for. Next question, do you have a one flesh view of marriage? In your view, is marriage a thing that a man and a woman do, or is marriage a thing that God does? Brings a man and a woman together, cements them together, glues them together, welds them together. Is that your view of marriage? Because if it is, divorce is going to be horrific to you. And I say this understanding that many of us in this room have been touched by the reality of divorce, either in our own relationships or certainly some of us know, either through family or friends, that have gone through this. Is divorce horrific because of how the Creator holds it high? A marriage is made by God not man. Oh, of course people are involved, and of course there are ceremony, and that ought to be there. 
It ought to be recognized by the society around. It ought to be recognized by the church. But ultimately, the witness that matters on the marriage day is God because he's doing something mysterious and welding two people together to become one flesh. And just because someone goes through a human divorce procedure and every human involved thinks it's legal and kosher and it looks good, that doesn't mean that a man or a person is forcing God's hand. God brought them together into one flesh. How could a person dissolve a bond that God has created? Now, you might be saying, well, wait, 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 whoa, whoa. Uh, Jesus gave an exception. Why did he give an exception? And he did give an exception. He said, except on the basis of sexual immorality. Why, if, if Jesus is holding the marriage so highly, why does he give that as an exception? Because in the case of sexual immorality, and I'm not just talking adultery, I'm talking about other manifestations of sexual immorality as well. It's a broad term that the one flesh relationship has already been broken. Because that's part Sexual union is part of becoming one flesh. And when that is already violated, well, you've already torn the fabric of that marriage. And so now in God's eyes, God is giving permission to the spouse that sinned against to divorce. But still, even in that case, it is a horrific thing that is happening. We shouldn't be comfortable with it. You can go through a human divorce procedure that that doesn't mean that God is forced to break the one flesh bond. Here's another question, because you can see it in the text. Are you starting by looking for grounds for divorce, or are you starting at looking at the Creator's design? See, the Pharisees started from the wrong place. They started in Deuteronomy 24. They should have started in Genesis 1 and 2. Are you working on your marriage? Because marriage is tough. We understand that in a fallen world. Are you working on your marriage? Husbands, loving your wives sacrificially, serving them, caring for them, nourishing them, directing them towards God. And wives, are you respecting your husbands? Now, the looming question is this. What if you or someone you know has already violated Jesus' commands? Isn't that the big question? Because, boy, we know, each of us knows someone at least that that's happened to, or maybe it's happened to us. What if you violated or someone you know has violated Jesus' commands regarding divorce and remarriage? You know, the church has done one of two things with this, basically. On one hand, those who do seek to hold marriage high uh, when a divorce happens, treat divorce as the unforgivable sin. Has that happened in church history and church culture? Absolutely it has. Is divorce the unforgivable sin? No. Because Jesus said in Matthew 12, there's only one unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And what does he say in that context? Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. So even if Jesus' commands have been violated here, there is still hope and forgiveness in the gospel. Doesn't mean all the messiness and destruction that that divorce causes goes away, this side of heaven, but it does mean that before God you are forgiven and can have a right relationship with God. The gospel. 
you violated those commands, or someone you know, it's not the end. Think of the woman at the well in John 4. Remember the woman at the well in John 4? Uh, Jesus has this really frank interchange with the woman at the well in John 4. Um, she's like, uh, uh, he says, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. He's like, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. That's a messy situation. But what does Jesus direct her to? He doesn't say, well, get away from me, you filthy woman. He says, if you knew the one who was talking with you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. See, the gospel is held out to her because even with all the messiness that humans have caused with divorce and remarriage and all of that, it's not beyond the grace of the gospel, the grace of the cross. doesn't mean all of those messy relationships aren't fixed automatically. It just means that there is forgiveness in God's eyes, which is what matters. What's Jesus' point in this? He is, that is countercultural to Jesus' day, and it's countercultural in our day. To talk about you valuing marriage so highly that you hate divorce that much, and that's Jesus' point. He's doing it for his disciples, too. Yes, he's correcting the Pharisees, but he's doing it for his disciples, whom we will see in a minute have imbibed the same value. Value marriage as highly as the Creator does. But what, are the, uh, what do the disciples have to say to this? Verse 10, in Matthew 19, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now, I want to point out to you that little word case, it's the same word that was used in 19.3, charge. If such is the charge that a, of a man that a man brings against his wife. Well, what's the case? The case is he has no case. Uh, if uh, a man brings a charge against his wife, unless it's sexual immorality, there is no case. There is no grounds. And the disciples understand that, and what do they conclude? If that's the case, it's better not to marry. Which is a really astounding statement, because it was just expected that if you're a Jewish man, you're going to get married. And so they're saying, well, if that's really the case, it's better not to get married. And what, uh, what are they saying? What's their motivation? If that's how God views it, if that's how strong the bond is, well, I don't want any part of that. I want my freedom. I want my comfort. I want my self-determination. I want to avoid the, difficulty of mar- uh, uh, avoid the difficulty of marriage. It's the same heart that the Pharisees have. They've imbibed the cultural... Um, mindset around them, and they draw, like, well, I want my freedom. I, I don't want to be bound, so it's better not to marry. Now, what Jesus does is he takes that and he turns it. He doesn't disagree, which is surprising. Look at verse 11. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. Now, which saying? In context, he's talking about the, uh, the, the, the saying of the disciples, that it's better not to marry if that's really how highly God views it, how strong the bond is. Not everyone can receive this saying, and the idea of receiving it is not just, oh yeah, I mentally receive it, but you make room for it in your life. You live by it. But only the, to those whom it is given. So what is Jesus saying? He's like, actually, you guys are right. It might be better not to marry but only to those to whom it is given. Given by who? Given by God. 
And then he explains, he supports. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs. What is a eunuch? A eunuch is an impotent male, has the ability to reproduce removed. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. In a fallen world, that is a natural uh, thing to happen. It's not supernatural. In other words, God's not giving that in the way that Jesus is talking. That's natural. It's unfortunate, but it's there. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. That was actually common in the ancient world as well. Uh, Kings, especially foreign kings, would like to have eunuch servants uh, to deal with the harem. It made it safer. Um, But here's where the punchline falls. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The first two cases are natural. They're common. It's not like God is giving that. The third case is something that God has to give. If you're going to say it's better not to get married, then you're going to live as a functional eunuch, celibate, not getting married, staying pure in your sexual life, but for what purpose? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the motivation here is not like the disciples have for freedom or for comfort or for avoiding the difficulty of marriage. The motivation to be able to say it's better not to marry is for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And here's what's amazing. Jesus says this at the end. Let the one who is able to make room for this, to receive it, let him make room for it. And here we have another imperative. He's saying, if God has given you the ability to remain unmarried, to be able to say it's better to not marry for the sake of the kingdom, not for your own comfort, not for your own independence, not for your own freedom, but for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus is going to bring, the kingdom that he's going to rule over, the kingdom that is populated by kingdom citizens saved through the gospel and gospel ministry. If you can acknowledge and make room for that, then you must. Then you must. It's not a suggestion. If God has given you that gift, it's a must. Now, in history, in church history, this has worked its way out in very unfortunate ways. The Roman Catholic Church forces priests to be celibate. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying anyone to whom God gives this gift for the sake of the kingdom of heaven must receive it. He's not saying everyone must. He's not saying leadership must. He's saying If God's given you that gift to labor and devote all your energies and efforts for the kingdom, because it's so much better and bigger than you or marriage or anything, the kingdom is bigger and better than all of that, then you do it, which is also countercultural. In that time, eunuchs were despised, like you can't even come into the assembly of Israel. In our time, singleness is not despised, but remaining celibate and sexually pure while being single is. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom is bigger than that. It's better than that. It's bigger than your, um, your, uh, your freedom. It's bigger than your comfort. It's bigger than you avoiding difficulty. And if God gives you the gift to do it, you must. And it's good. You see how Jesus is inverting the values of the disciples and our values. Do you have that big of a view of the kingdom? 
Are you happy just to come each and every week and hear the scriptures expounded? Does, does the kingdom of God, does King Jesus change your life such that you would be willing to say, you know what, the kingdom's so much bigger than I am. It's so much more beautiful. It's bigger than my individual freedom, my comfort, that either on the one hand, I'm going to hold marriage very, marriage very high and I'm going to labor at it. Or on the other hand, I'm going to say, I'm not going to get married because the kingdom's so much better than that. That's astounding. And that's what Jesus is calling you to. This is uncomfortable in its design to be. Because the kingdom is not comfortable. Christianity is not comfortable. If you're comfortable, you're in trouble. That's what the gospel does. Think of the God-man emptying himself to become a man, to stay celibate, to then go to Jerusalem to die a shameful death on a cross to redeem his people from every sin and blasphemy so that they might enter his kingdom that he will bring in the future and reign over. If that does not change you, I don't think you're spiritually alive. If you're comfortable with that not changing your life, you've got a problem and we need to talk about it and you need to repent. And you need to love Jesus because that is astounding. As, Jesus, as disciples of Jesus value marriage highly, as highly as its creator does, and value remaining unmarried for the kingdom as a gift. Let's pray. Jesus, you are unusual because you are the God-man. You are the king. And our world is so messed up. We are so messed up. We are fouled up, disgusting, broken, wicked-hearted people, hard-hearted people, oh Lord God. And yet you have extended grace to save us. And that salvation is going to change and upend all of our lives and values Lord, it must, and only by the power of your Spirit, removing the foreskin of flesh, removing the hardness of heart, changing us, giving us new life so that we can live in the ways that you demand of us. Only by your Spirit, only by that power can we do so. Lord Jesus, we love you. Give us eyes to see your great salvation. Give us eyes to see the greatness of the kingdom. And Lord, may our values be inverted. May we change. May we live in the way that you want us to live. May we value marriage highly. And I pray if there, are, there I know there are singles in this room, they're considering marriage. Lord, if you've given them the gift of remaining single for the sake of the kingdom, I pray that they would consider that and that they would follow your call. Help us to support them in the church. Lord, prepare our hearts now as we prepare to take your supper. Help us to do it with reverence and awe at you and what you have done and your inverted values from our culture. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.